We are so glad that you are here today. In fact, why don't you tell that person on your right, I'm glad you're here. Turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Last week we picked up, picked back up the book of James and we're talking about our words, waking up to our words. James actually doesn't give us any applications. He doesn't say, you know, I said all this, now do all of this. He, he just kind of just says facts and leaves the application up to us. And the primary application is I just need to be alert. I need to be alert to what comes out of my mouth because things come out of our mouth, don't they? And they come out of our, the mouths of other people towards us. Yesterday I was sitting with uh, three, our three kids. I was holding Willa, who's an uh, infant. She's three months old and Jackson's there. He's almost 10 and Annabeth is uh, seven. Annabeth loves Willa. She is second mommy. She is the world's perfect big sister. She's just awesome in every way. Loves Willa so much. Every night before bed, she'll walk upstairs and then, nope, forgot to kiss Willa. Come back down, give her a a kiss on the head. Same thing when she leaves for school every day. She does not leave without kissing Willa goodbye. So we're sitting around, the three of us, outside of a restaurant, and uh, uh, Annabeth says, you know, Dad, because you're so old, you probably won't be able to walk Willa down the aisle. So can I walk her down? So then we started doing math about how old I would be and how old she would be. And I was like, well, technically, I don't think you'll be able to walk her down the aisle then either if I'm too old. Just words, man, they come. They come from babies. They come from teenagers. They come from spouses. They come from Friends, they come from strangers, words, and words come from us, and we're trying to wake up to our words so that our words reflect our faith. James chapter three, last week we saw from the word of God that our tongues or our words, they're small, but they're influential. They're like the bit in a horse's mouth, a rudder on a ship. They're like a small flame that turns into a large forest fire. The tongue is a fire, it says. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. It's among the rest of our body parts, and yet it pollutes all of our body parts. It is uh, restless evil, full of deadly poison. And in fact, it says, no man can tame the tongue. And this is what it says in verse nine. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who are made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt water spring yield fresh water. So a few things, just simple things as we wrap up these two weeks on our words. First, words are worship. Words are meant for worship. That's what it says. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. To, to bless, when we are blessing a person, if we were gonna say that, I bless you, 
there's an impartation happening. There's something traveling from the person doing the blessing to the person being blessed. If, if a dad pulls aside a son and just says, son, I want you to, I want to bless you and I believe in you and I think you're going to be a great man one day. There's something be, being imparted to that son, but that's not the kind of blessing that we give God. He doesn't need anything from us. He is filled up to the maximum in confidence today. He's filled up to the maximum in glory today. He doesn't have any weaknesses that we need to come around and encourage. He doesn't have low self-esteem. Uh, he's fine. So when we bless him, we're not imparting anything to him. But that blessing is just gratitude. It's praise. It's, it's worship. And that's what our words are meant for. It's the highest calling that our words can have to be worship. Words are very powerful. You know that, I know that. If the chairman of the Federal Reserve has a press conference and says that, you know, we think interest rates are, are gonna rise, then interest rates rise everywhere. And your mortgage changes and your car note changes because one man had some words. If a CEO of a company that all of us share in um, says something positive or negative, the stock price changes, which means all these other companies are going to be in the chain reaction. Words are very powerful. I mean, would you have even imagined even five years ago that you would just be able to talk to your phone and get it to do things without your fingers? I mean, I have an iPhone. How many of you have an iPhone today? Yeah. Let's pray for those who don't have iPhones. I'm just kidding. I don't need anybody coming up saying, telling me about how Androids are the best. You just, you keep rocking that belief. But I mean, watch what you can do for the phone. I can set a timer without any, without touching it. Set a timer. Oh, no, no. I wasn't ready yet. I wasn't ready yet. Stop. Stop, you're the worst. The worst. Set a timer. For how long? 25 minutes. Okay, 25 minutes and counting. All right, she's counting down. Let's see if I can finish. I think I can. I think I can. But words are powerful. They accomplish things for us. They, they don't just accomplish things for us on our phone. They're, they're honestly how we get things done. And their highest use, they're never more powerful than in worship. It is their sacred calling for our words to be worship. I want you to turn to Job chapter one. We all know the story of Job, even if this is your first time in church in a long time. In the history of bad days, Job's is up there. I mean, you remember the story of Job, just a little refresher. Satan is kind of wandering in and out of the earth, and he appears before God. And God had a lot of favor on Job, and God really believed in Job. Something that we all want. We want the recommendation of God, but we need to know that that favor, we don't get to choose what door it opens for us. You want the blessing of God on your life. That's a, a noble thing, but you don't get to choose what door that blessing opens. And for Job, the favor of God opened up a pretty painful door because it says, then the Lord said to Satan, have you, in verse eight, considered my servant Job, 
No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan says, yeah, right, of course you're gonna push forward Job because you've blessed him in every way. You've favored him in every way. He's got everything that anybody could ever want. So of course he's gonna be a guy who's uh, filled with integrity. And God says, well, you can do whatever you want to him, but you can't touch his life. You can't hurt him. And, and that's what Satan orchestrates. And, and the story is, one messenger shows up to Job and says, Here's, you're not gonna believe this, but this is what happens, and Job loses his livestock. And another messenger shows up at the same time that that one is saying stuff and says, you're not gonna believe this, but you've lost all your wealth. And then another one shows up and says, you're not gonna believe this, but, but an army came, and, and now you've lost all your servants. And then another one shows up and says, more than that, you've lost all your children. It says in verse 18, he was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So we laugh at Job's bad day, but this is how his day ends. With dead children. And it says, then Job stood up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Worship in the midst of the worst day in the history of bad days, you may think, well, that's a little unrealistic. But I got to tell you, the spirit of Job is alive and well. I was sitting with a family on Monday who had just lost their 24-year-old daughter. She spiraled in about three weeks, and they're having a memorial service today. And in that living room, on what I am guessing is the worst day 24 hours that they had ever experienced, I'm watching as their faith in Jesus just forms an anchor in their souls. And they're saying things, and I'm thinking, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to be the one saying those things to you, but they're saying those things to me. Spirit of Job is alive and well. Worship in the midst of calamity. And I love, too, that Job is devastated. Somehow in our minds, we think worship and happy go together, that I worship best when I am at my happiest. And we've all done that. We've all done that on Sunday morning. We're just having a bad day, and the music's fired up, and man, last time we sang that song, it was really connecting with you, and you had your hands in the air, and you were excited, and you were kind of bouncing around, but then today's been a bad day, and so you're just not as into it, because we associate happiness and worship together. But the worship never changes, The worship stays the same. The worship is steady, whether it's happy or not. I mean, Job gets the news and he falls to the ground. He tears his robe and he shaves his head. Imagine that kind of violent reaction. And throughout all this, it said, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Then chapter two happens and Satan comes back to God and says, well, of course he didn't, you know, turn on you because you didn't touch his life. 
At the end of the day, all men and women are selfish and you touch that selfish button and he will turn on you so fast. So God said, well, whatever, you can do whatever you want to him. You just can't kill him. I love that guy. I favor that guy. Some of you, this year has been awful already. It's only been a month and it's been awful and you've been tempted to say, God has abandoned me, but it may be that there's a Job situation in the background and God loves you and he believes in you and he's got something great planned for your life. But for whatever reason, he loved you so much to say, I need somebody to represent faith. I need somebody to represent worship. I need somebody to represent tenacity and endurance. Here, test this guy. And so Satan says, well, fine, I'm gonna spare his life. Very well, the Lord told Satan, he is in your power, only spare his life, verse seven. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with incurable boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. So here's this guy's story. Lost everything, wealth, possessions, servants, children, Now he has an incurable disease that causes painful boils. This guy's got a shaved head, ripped open clothes, sitting in ashes, scraping off his sores. And his wife says to him, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. You'll always have a good excuse to curse. You always have a good excuse to use your mouth less than worship. Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? And here it is. Throughout all this, Job did not sin. We've already heard that in what he said. Guy, shaved head, ripped open clothes, sitting in ashes, scraping off his wounds. Lost everything. Wife has turned on God Maybe he's gonna turn on him and he did not sin in what he said. Listen, we sin in what we say, and I say we, we sin in what we say when I don't get a good parking spot. If I have to wait in a line at the store of more than three people, I sin with my mouth. If I have one bad day at work, I'll sin with my mouth. We sin with our mouth at the easiest things. This guy knows though. No, my words are meant for worship. My words are meant to bless God. Even in the worst of days, blessed be the name of the Lord. Back in James, it says, James chapter three, our words are for worship. They bless God. But look what else our words do. Our words are weapons. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who are made in God's likeness. So we curse men made in God's likeness. And this was an important topic to Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse 22, that if you call somebody a fool, you're subject to the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of religious leaders. So if you call somebody a fool, you might have to be accountable to, to them, but if you call somebody a moron, that's what my Bible says, it literally says moron. You didn't know that moron was in the Bible. It, it says, if you call someone a moron, you're subject to the hellfire. And I read that and I went, uh-oh, moron is one of my favorite words. 
Everybody's a moron. That guy's a moron. I'm a moron. You're a moron. Everybody. I just is always coming out of my mouth. And I read that and I was like, whoa. I'm going to try to remove that from my vocabulary. Jesus says this is a big deal. So when we read these verses from James, we know that he's inheriting this intensity from his half-brother, Jesus, when he communicates to them. And he says, we curse men made in the likeness of God. This past week on Thursday, I was driving into town and I have to commute on 290 and it was rush hour traffic and it's just a disaster. So I had somebody that I was meeting. So I said, uh, well, I'll take the HOV and the HOV you can pay as a toll. And so it was a tough decision. It's actually $5 to get on the HOV, but I thought it was worth it, you know, and, and so I'm in it and I'm just cruising by. And the whole time I'm cruising by, I'm laughing at all these people in traffic and I get towards the end of the HOV and you start seeing the brake lights coming towards you like a train. And so we were stopped, uh, which is not totally unusual if you've ever been on the HOV. And, and so we're waiting there for a few minutes and a few minutes turns into five minutes. And at five minutes, I put my car in park. And you could tell everybody else did too. About five minutes later, you start seeing people's heads pop out of their car. And so I opened my door and I stood up trying to see as far as I, my eyes can see the road, just nothing but taillights parking lights on. So I just pull out some work and for 45 minutes I sat in my car. You ever um, seen in the summer when the pavement is super hot, you can see all the steam or the heat? off of it. That's what was coming off all the cars in front of me as we waited for 45 minutes, totally stuck. And I'm thinking all kinds of terrible things about the person that broke down in the middle of the HOV. What's their problem? Why don't they get their oil changed? Why didn't they test their lug nuts before they got in their car today? Even though I didn't do that, but they should have. Were they not paying attention? Were they Instagramming and they ran into the side of the the rails there? And I'm thinking about all the dumb things that they did. And it wasn't until about minute 44 in my 45-minute wait that I thought, I wonder if they're okay. I wonder if they're gonna be able to pay for the repairs to their cars. I didn't think one time about that person until the very last minute because that's what happens. We treat people as problems and not people. We diminish the likeness of God in them because they're a problem to us and when they're a problem to us, then they're no longer a person to us. Just an obstacle. We're most free with our mouths, I think, with famous people. You know, I mean, when was the last time that you actually said out loud that you hate somebody? I would guess for us men, it was a sports person. You know, a receiver drops the ball, quarterback throws another interception. And you're like, I hate that guy. Now, if that guy was actually in the room with you, you would have not said, I hate you. You would have asked for his autograph. But it's easy to say, TV to TV, I hate that guy. Why? Because he's not actually a person in that moment. If he was there in front of me, then he would be a person. But he's not. He's just a problem for our team. Musicians, somebody says, you know who I really like, blah, blah, blah. And we go, man, I hate that guy. I hate that girl. I hate that band. Like poor Justin Bieber. You know, he's the most cursed person on earth. Because every dude in here has heard somebody say something positive about Biebs 
And we've been like, I hate that guy. Now, we don't know that guy. He could be a wonderful guy. If he were here right now, we'd be like, do you want to sing a song right now? <laughs> baby, baby, baby. You know, I'd, I'd sing it with him, you know? Because if he's here, then he's a person. But if he's not here, then he's a problem. If he's not here, he's an obstacle. If he's not here, he's just a thing. And that's what happens when we diminish the image, the likeness of God in somebody. We don't treat them as human beings anymore. We just treat them as obstacles. We treat them as something, not someone. Now, when we read that phrase, likeness of God, or God's likeness, maybe in your mind you're stirring around, where have I heard that before? It comes from Genesis chapter one, actually the first pages of the scripture, Genesis one. God has created everything, days one through five, and on day six, verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the animals, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them, verse 28, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every creature that crawls on the the earth. God said, look, I have given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This food will be for you. And you know, that phrase, be fruitful and multiply. When we hear that, we're only thinking of one thing, right? I don't want to say that one thing out loud. We got children here, but we're thinking about one thing, right? Because somebody awkwardly stood up at your rehearsal dinner and told you, hey, be fruitful and multiply. And you're like, we're not even married yet. I'm not thinking about kids. I'm not thinking about grandkids. I'm not thinking about multiplying anything. Uh, you know, but that's what we think. Be fruitful and multiply. It's about having kids. It's about repopulating the earth. It's about adding this and adding that. But the phrase be fruitful can mean a lot of things. Now, I mean, be multiply, that means one thing, but be fruitful means a lot of things. And we know that because immediately after it, he doesn't talk about kids anymore. He talks about the earth. He talks about the harvest of the earth. He talks about the trees giving fruit and the trees uh, giving off seeds and the seeds turning into plants. He, he talks about all those things. So being fruitful is more than just about having kids. It's about abundance. Now look what happens when sin enters the world. Satan tempts Adam and Eve. He plugs into their selfish desires. And there's a curse that happens. There's a curse to the serpent in chapter three. This is the curse to the woman. I will intensify, verse 16, your labor pains and you will bear children in anguish. You, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will dominate you. So ladies, two things that are the curse for you. One, childbearing is very painful. And number two, you're gonna fight a lot with your husband. And you're like, well, he's an idiot and moron. <laughs> Maybe so. This is what he says to Adam. Because... You listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. So you're not gonna love your job every day. It's part of the curse. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it for you are dust and you will return dust. This is what it means to curse somebody. It means I don't want you to be fruitful. 
I want everything that you do to be dust. I don't want abundance for you. I want dust for you. I don't want a harvest for you. I want dirt for you. Right now, even in our minds, we got people and you're like, yeah, that's what I'm wishing for them. I'm not wishing ease for them. I'm wishing pain for them. I'm not wishing uh, abundance and plentiful for them. I'm, I'm wishing that everything in their life, everything that they put their hands to would be dust. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that every time they eat, that, that it just tastes like dust. That's what I want. That is us cursing men and women made in the likeness of God. Why? Well, because they wronged us. So dust for them. Because they weren't on our side. Dust for them. Because they didn't think about me. Dust for them. Not blessing for them. Cursing for them. This is why Jesus feels so strongly in Matthew chapter 5, 22. And he says, no, if you're going to curse somebody, if you're going to call them a fool, if you're going to call them, you know, every name in the book, I stand against that and I'm going to judge that. Why? Because I'm unrolling the curse. I'm erasing the curse. It doesn't make sense then for his people to keep on cursing. Jesus says, no, I got a future better than dust for all the people on earth, all those who will believe in my name. So man, I don't want to unleash my people onto planet earth as the light of the world, but all they're wishing for is the curse. I'm trying to undo that. And our words end up becoming weapons. James finishes his section about our words by showing us some illustrations. Verse 11, does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers or a grapevine produce figs. Neither can salt water spring yield fresh water. He's saying it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for in the same mouth for there to be blessing and cursing. It's the same idea that he has in chapter one, verse eight, when he's talking about us asking for wisdom. But he says, let us ask in faith. Because if we ask, but we don't have faith, it doesn't make sense. Why would we ask God for something we're not gonna believe that he'll do? And he says that we're actually a double-minded man and a double-minded man is unstable. And so that's what he's saying again to us today. He's like, listen, something's wrong. Something is wrong with you if in your mouth can be both blessing and cursing. If you want good things from God and you're gonna praise God for those good things, but you want dust for other people, doesn't make sense and it shouldn't be that way. And today, just really simple, simply we're waking up to our words. And words are powerful. We've already said that. That's why James said, hey, the rudder of a ship, small is powerful. A bit in the mouth of a horse, it's small, but it's powerful. I love the words that Jesus doesn't use in Matthew chapters 26 and 27 his final moments before his death. He's arrested. 
and he appears before the Sanhedrin, same Sanhedrin that you'll appear before if you call somebody a fool. It says that they actually present some false witnesses to come and accuse him of things that he, he didn't do. So with words, these false witnesses are lying. And with words, the Sanhedrin is actually trying to accuse him of things that he didn't do. And all he says is, you have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you in the future, you will see the son of man seated on the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he just says one sentence, you've said it, I've said it, you said it. And then he quotes some scripture. And then Peter, verse 69, Peter's hanging out outside. And with words, he denies Jesus three times. He finishes in verse 74. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath. I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed and Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter, with words, denies Jesus. Judas, with words, chapter 27, tries to walk back his betrayal. Tries to come back, give the silver back. He's like, I don't want any part of this. And they're like, it's too late. Then Jesus stands before Pilate and with words, Pilate tries to appease everybody. Tries to appease those wanting to crucify Jesus and appease Jesus because he knows Jesus isn't guilty. With words, he tries to mediate that. Then with words, the crowd yells, crucify, crucify, crucify. Pilate's like, no, 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 no. And they're like, crucify, crucify, crucify. And the whole time, Matthew chapter 27 says, verse 12, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. The whole time, Jesus is being attacked with words that have been fashioned as weapons. He doesn't speak. And I think that's the takeaway for these two weeks. We want our mouth and our words to be attached to the will of God. Real simple. We bless and we talk less. If I could just get those two things in my mind, I could tame my tongue. I bless and I talk less. Let's pray. God, we do bless you in this place. We do speak highly of you. We do honor you today. It's gratitude in our hearts. And help us to wake up to our words. Help us to wake up. powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.